Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Titus chapter 1 this morning. Uh, also, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 as well. So put your finger in, in 2 Peter 1, but turn and open with me to Titus chapter 1. We are continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study through the book of Titus entitled the Blueprint Series. And uh, we find ourselves... Uh, in verses 5 through 9 this morning. Last week we did the introduction, verses 1 through 4, and today we are in verses 5 through 9. If you'll stand with me, I've entitled this message, Qualities of a Godly Leader. So Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, we read, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught." so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, here we are. Bibles open. Father, open our hearts even right now. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to obey what it is that you would say to us this morning. Lord, we ask you to come in this place in might and power through your word by our teacher, the Holy Spirit, this morning and speak into our lives. We, we want to open ourselves up to that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So today we're going to talk about what it takes to be a leader in the body of Christ. Now before we move into this passage, I want to define a few words so that we know what we're talking about here. Paul uses a, a couple different types of words in these, in really verses 5 through 7, relating to the type of leader that he's talking about. In verse 5, we find the word elder. In the Greek, it's presbuteros, uh, and it's most commonly used term for elder in the New Testament. It stems from presbutus, which means elderly, literally just a mature man in the body, somebody who is mature. But I think he's also, in, in terms of not just elderly in age, but also elderly and mature in the Lord, is uh, how we would kind of understand that word to be. Um, in verse 7, we see the word overseer here. It's the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or overseer. This word literally means to look after or to visit. It's where we get the, the, the English word episcopal. And presbyteros is where we get the word presbyterian. So you have Episcopal, Presbyterian. They're speaking about the same person, the same type of leader in the body of Christ, the elder, the overseer, somebody who has responsibility for the flock of God, to care for the flock of God, to minister to the flock of God. This is the type of person that Paul is describing here. The title pastor could also be interchanged here within these words. A pastor is most certainly also an elder in the church. I'm an elder in the church here. Um, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when you look at uh, the verses there, 1 through 7, talking about eldership in the body, Paul defines two different types of elders. You know, you have a ministering elder who sort of ministers the practical, um, you know, spiritual needs of the body of Christ. And then you have the teaching elder, somebody who is responsible for teaching in the body of Christ. I'm the we call that role the senior pastor, the teaching elder. I'm the senior pastor. I'm also an elder in the church. But my role is responsible. My, my primary responsibility is to bring forth the word of God. That is my job. And of course, because we're a small church, we, I also help in ministering to people. And, you know, we, we, we do all kinds of counseling and different things like that. So, you know, that happens. But also Pastor Mike. And Pastor Brian, oh, they're not here today. Isn't it interesting that we're studying these passages? They're not here today. No, I'm just kidding. But they're on vacation. Just so happen to be that these men know that. They understand their role. And they take it very seriously. And I, I believe they do a great job. 
in our body, ministering to our body. But, any, you know, th- that title could be transferred uh, pastor. That, that, com- that word actually is not in the Bible, by the way. Pastor, have you ever read that in the Bible? It's not in there. It comes from the word shepherd. Shepherd is in the, in the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. You know, but, but that word literally means shepherd, uh, you know, in the Latin, is pastor. Pastor. Literally, it means to lead, to pasture, to set to graze, cause to eat. The pastor's role is to bring the food, the manna of God, to bring the word of God to the people of God. There are also um, another set of leadership within the body called deacons. You can read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, towards the end of the uh, verses 8 through 11. And deacons are servants in in the body of Christ. Now, if you go back and you're interested in listening to that, you can listen to uh, 1 Timothy. We did a verse by verse through that um, as well just not too long ago. You can go to our website and listen to that. But, but a deacon can be occupied by both a man and a woman. There's no distinction relating to the role that can be played when it comes to servant. Literally, deacon means servant. A man or a woman could play that role. In our church, we prefer to have men be deacons in our body. And it's a preference. We prefer it because we want to, we don't want people to be confused about leadership and what leadership means, what we believe to be biblical leadership in the church. That is male headship. Now this is not arrogance, this is not, you know, uh, male chauvinism or anything like that. I, I believe this is purely biblical text, folks. And the reason for that is if you look up the, 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 um, the masculinity of these, uh, uh, you know, the, the gender of the words used here, episkopos, presbyterus, it's in the masculine form. It defined, it's defined as a male. That is God's purpose. That is the way that God designed things, not the way that we choose them to be. It's the way that God designed them to be. And, uh, and so, you know, there, there's become a lot of confusion relating to pastors, elders in the body of Christ as of recently and relating to women stepping in pulpits and teaching on Sunday mornings and all of these kinds of things. Even within our movement of Calvary Chapel, folks, it's happening now. I say that to say, this is a secondary issue. This is not something that is a salvation issue. There's different uh, beliefs in that. I, I, I believe very, very strongly that what Paul is saying here is that a man should lead the church. I believe a man should lead the church. Why? Because that's also the model in the home. The man is to be the spiritual leader of the home, not the woman. Most women do lead spiritually in their homes, unfortunately, which is a slap in the face to us, fellas, because that's our call. God created and designed you to be a man, to be a steward of, of the spiritual, uh, you know, your spiritual home, to make sure that your, your, your wife and your, your children are being brought up, up in the ways of the Lord. It's your responsibility to do that. So you study to show yourself approved. You get in the Word of God. You know the Word of God so you can lead your family, so that you can lead your wife. Don't make her do it. And here's what I would say to you ladies. Don't do it. Because if you do it, your husband won't do it. You have to allow the Lord to do that work. You know, uh, there are many, many great churches out there that have women pastors. I'm not here to talk about, you know, really that relating to that what I'm here to tell you is I don't think that that's biblical and I think Paul makes it plain in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verses 12 through 14 I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain silent for Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor that is to say that this is God's design It is God's design. God formed you and I. He formed the church. He gets to do whatever he wants. He gets to run it however he wants to. When you're creator, uh, you can do that however you want to. But you're not creator. I'm not creator. And so what is our response to the word of God? Surrender. Surrender to the word of God. That, that That is what we're supposed to do. Th- these ideas and, and really all, all of, a lot of this stuff has come through the women's liberation movement. 
And of course, women have been treated horribly in, in a lot of different cultures. They still are today. And that isn't to discount you know, that or to, to make light of that. It is not. And by the way, these roles are not the woman is just to do what she's told. That's not what, it, what the word submit means either. She's to be submissive to the word of God. And, and if her husband is contrary to the word of God, then that's where you draw the line. But you have to let him lead. And then, you know, in the, and then, you know, this is, again, a secondary issue. Men and women are created equal in personhood. They have equal worth, but they have different roles. And we have to sort of come, let that, that, that subject come to a head and sort of determine whether we're going to believe what the Bible says or we're going to, you know, be offended by it and, and, you know, adopt something else that's outside of Scripture. You know, what we need to do is be surrendering to the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to change our hearts because we all have different types of pride we deal with. And maybe this is something that rubs you the wrong way. I would say pray about it. If you have concerns or questions, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about it. You know, I'd love to go through the scriptures with you. So I believe Paul, when he's speaking about this, he's speaking about an elder, an overseer, a pastor, who is a man that is leading the church. The church in Crete was in desperate need, man, of uh, qualified leaders in the body of Christ to minister, to guide, to care for this flock. And that need has not changed, folks. It's the same need today. We need men to step up and to serve in the body. I'm, I'm so blessed by what God has done through the faithfulness of Pastor Mike on Wednesday mornings in Man Coffee, 6.30 a.m. It started with just two guys and, and Pastor Mike meeting on a reg, uh, every Wednesday, and it's grown to at least 16 to maybe 20 guys at this point that are coming in on a weekly basis and just sharpening each other's swords, and we need to do that. We need to sharpen each other's swords. We, we sort of have men kind of go off and do our, kind of we're loners and think that we don't need people. You, hey, you do need somebody. Number one, you need Jesus, but you also need dudes that love Jesus in your life. You need those kinds of people in your life because uh, God will use them to prod you on, to help you when you've fallen down, to build you up, to encourage you to just remind you of very important truths in the Word of God. And I, I'm so blessed by that, that time together. I know many of the guys here are incredibly blessed by that. And it's, it's a great thing that God is doing there. But the church needs biblically qualified men who will step into the, their roles that they've been called to. Now, one of the biggest mistakes that a person or a church can make when it comes to appointing leaders is to do it without any, any sort of confirmation that they have, that this person that's being considered has a call from God on their life. That is the most, that is the most uh, dangerous thing that a person or a church can do. If we're only looking at the qualities that Paul looks, uh, Paul mentions here, then we're, we're missing the bigger picture. The qualities sort of define the, the spiritual person, but the call comes from God. The call comes from the Lord, and only the Holy Spirit can confirm that. And so you have elders who get together and pray. They observe. They watch men in the body of Christ, and they, they look for characteristics, but more importantly, they pray. Are they called God? Are they called um, You know, Paul, when, when Paul uh, was separated with Barnabas, it was by men seeking the Lord. In Acts chapter 13, verses 2, two through 4, it said, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Again, when Paul was speaking to the elders at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, listen to what he says here. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. One must be called by the Holy Spirit to be a leader in the church. That is first and foremost. There are people that are incredibly gifted 
that have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that have lots of different giftings of the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean they're called. God designed each and every one of us to be part of a body, to be different parts of the body. But, you know, uh, not everyone has the same call. There's different giftings in different parts of the body. So God disperses that amongst men in the body and women amongst the body. And, and then you find your place in the body. There are many, many uh, incredibly gifted people in this world today who are not necessarily called to be an elder or pastor of a church. That's a calling. And so we, that's the first thing that we need to look for. What is the Holy Spirit calling this person to do? And, you know, the way we do it is we know the Spirit will confirm within the, with, within the hearts of every person whether or not there's a call or not. I can tell you there's been one time when we were, uh, someone came to us and was going to, they wanted us to support them as a missionary and these kinds of things. And we, we prayed as an eldership over it. We met with this person over and over and over again and never sensed that it was a call from God. And so we, we it's the hardest conversation to have to somebody is to say, you know, I don't sense that the Holy Spirit is telling me that you're called. You know, and, and through through much labor of trying to, I'm trying to hear the call. I'm trying to, I'm trying to connect with the Spirit of God so I can hear it because I, I don't want to discourage you, but I didn't hear the call. And I don't sense the Holy Spirit's calling this person and, and neither did any of our other elders on Stafford. There was a confirmation there relating to that. That's a tough position to be in, but, you know, you do what's right. You don't, you don't do what's easy. And so we had to tell this person, unfortunately, that, that information. And I don't think they ever did go to missions. They found their way some other place. And, and, you know, God uses hardships like that sometimes to redirect us and get us back on a different path. When somebody is called into ministry, it isn't because they're washed up in the world and they, have, they can do nothing else. They, oh, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not really that great at anything else. I guess I'll become a pastor or I'll become an elder in the church or a director of children's ministry or, I mean, you know, I, maybe I'll be, you know, some sort of a leader in the church if I can't do anything else, you know. That's not the case. God looks for people that he can use. He looks for loyal hearts. He does not look for abilities because he can give people abilities. That's not the issue. He looks for loyalty. He looks for people who are sold out to him, who are all into him, who are willing to, to sacrifice and do what it takes to be people that are put in, the, um, you know, put in uh, difficult situations to, to stand in the gap for the body of Christ. That's what he looks for. He looks for those kinds of people. Charles Spurgeon uh, once said regarding the pastorate, if, if there is anything else that you can do, anything besides ministry, do it. Do it. Don't just step into this. This is not something you step into. Martin Lloyd-Jones, regarding Spur, Spur, uh, Spurgeon's statement regarding that, said, I would certainly say that without any hesitation whatsoever. I would say that the only man who is called to preach is the man who cannot do anything else in the sense that he is not satisfied with anything else. This call to preach is so put upon him and such pressure comes to bear upon him that he says, I can do nothing else. I must preach. This is the kind of person that knows they're called, that understands they're called. They're not stepping into something. Um, because they don't have anything else, you know, they don't, they're not self-appointed. They're appointed by the Holy Spirit himself to fulfill the role of overseer in the body, to lead, to shepherd, to exhort, to care for the Lord's people. Again, they're not qualified because they're naturally gifted. As a business owner... You know, when, when you are hiring for a position, what do you look for? You get a resume with a piece of paper that says, this is who I am. I'm looking for this position. I have a piece of paper that says, you fit the requirements of this job. You have the experience to do this job and whatnot. What is missing? The character of the person. What I learned 
in owning my own business for uh, uh, you know several years is that character is more important than ability. A piece of paper doesn't should ought not limit somebody from stepping into a role because you can teach people anything, but you cannot teach people character. That is ingrained within them. And they will operate in their personality the way that they are. Go for it and try and change that. I, I promise you it will not go well. And you'll, you'll be like I was for a period of time going, man, it says on paper that they're the right person, but they don't have the right character. You choose character over ability. And, and that's kind of how the way I, I look at the Lord. He knows us. He, he made us, you know, our persons. He knows our, our, our characters. He, he designed all of us in certain ways and for a purpose. He wants to use your personality. He's not trying to change your personality. He gave that to you. Maybe he's trying to shape it a little bit, but in, in a sense, you know, he didn't try and change Peter, Peter's personality, just trying to tame him down a little bit, get him to think a little bit more biblically, and the same holds true for you and I. God appoints the man. We don't look for talent. We look for an appointing. We look for the Holy Spirit to do these things. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, worship leaders... They're, they're not just uh, people who couldn't cut it in the music business. They actually have a calling to do this. Like some people, like Cake Puckett, decide to divert from secular music to give her gifting to the Lord, to serve the Lord, and those sorts of things. And uh, that is, should be the case with every single position in the body of Christ, particularly those who stand in a pulpit and those who are on the eldership of the body of Christ. They, they, they need to be called by God, and he will do the rest. Now, you might think this morning, you're like, well, good, that's great. You know, why am I here? I'm not in leadership. Uh, I'm not an elder of the church. Why do I need to be here? Because God wants to tell you Something about character this morning. Not only what you ought to be looking for in people like myself, Pastor Mike, Pastor Brian, you know, the different leaders in our body, our worship leaders and these sorts of things, but also because they're supposed to be in you too. God, God, Paul is not giving a list here that exclusive to leadership, to people who are elders or overseers in the church. These are things that they must possess but these are things that you ought to possess yourself. These are characteristics. These are, these are evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life that you ought to have yourself. And so nobody here is off the hook when it comes to these scriptures. Oh, come on. I, the, Titus is a, a pastoral epistle, but it applies to you. Every single word of it. When it comes to the qualifications of godly leaders, those characteristics also apply to you. It's not some special class of characteristics that God says, okay, well, my leaders are going to get this. No. Everybody gets this. But your leaders better have this. That's what Paul is saying here. And so as we move into these, this passage here, I, I, I want to I actually, let me, let's go to first, Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Um, Second Peter chapter 1 real quick. I want to just read these verses of Peter himself telling the body of Christ, all believers everywhere, that they must possess these also these characteristics, that they're supposed to also have these things. Second Peter chapter one, uh, beginning in verse one, we're gonna we're gonna pick it up in verse one, but ultimately we're looking at really verses three through fifteen. So Second Peter chapter one, Simon Peter, a servant. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul said that last week? It's identity and then it's, and then it's function. There we have Peter do the same thing. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's writing to all believers everywhere. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord and end of uh, Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers, listen, of the divine nature. Circle that in your Bible. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement, with you, with, uh, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Listen, for these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are, and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is Peter saying? He's saying that you have a divine nature. When you are born again, your nature changes. Prior to being born again into, you know, through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit coming to reside inside of you, you are just totally prone to sin. There's nothing you can do about it because that's your nature, the fallen nature. But when you come to Christ, everything changes. That's why Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about you and I walking in newness of life. Why? Because we've been given a new, new uh, nature. We've been given a divine nature. That means that we ought to strive to, to the best of our ability, and we have the ability to walk like Jesus Christ walked. Why? Because we've been given a divine nature. That divine nature comes with qualities. And that's what Peter goes on to say. He says, you know, it comes with, with faith and virtue and all these sorts of things that he talks about there. And I would say that the Apostle Paul is defining here, relating to leaders, the divine nature that Peter is speaking about. And he's just saying, you can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in people by looking at these qualities. But these qualities should be in everybody. And so Peter says, I'm going to remind you of that. And so this morning, I'm going to stir you up like Peter stirred up the people who read his letter back in the day and, and even to this day stirring us up to understand the qualities that come with the divine nature through the Holy Spirit of God. As we move into Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, do not check out. Do not think this has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with you because you're supposed to have these qualities too. But the leaders in the church must have them. And if they don't have them, that should concern you. That should concern you greatly, and you should tell somebody about that. Hey, you know, I see this in the Bible. I don't see this in your life. And so we're going to talk about what these things look like. There's two different sections here, divided these, these verses up into two different points. One, we start out with the purpose given, and then the qualities defined. First, the pur purpose given, um, verse 5 here. Paul instructing Titus what his purpose is in Crete, where he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, in order to be effective in anything in life, particularly in ministry, you need to understand your purpose. If you have no purpose, if you don't know, in other words, if you have no, no map, you don't know where you're going, how are you going to go? You're not going to be able to. You need to understand your purpose. Why are you here? What is God telling you to do? We know from the scripture Jesus said 
that we at least all have the same purpose, and that is the Great Commission. We're called to evangelize and disciple. Those are two things that you and I, no matter who we are, we are called to. That is our purpose, right? Jesus left us here with a divine nature so that we could evangelize and so that we could disciple. But it doesn't stop there. The Lord then takes people who, are, who, are, who have this divine nature and then he gives them special abilities to fulfill different roles within the body of Christ. And so you have a, 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 a very specific purpose as well. And so you then have to go on a journey with the Lord. And you have to say, God, I know what my overall purpose is. I know what the common purpose is for my life, which is to evangelize and disciple what is my specific purpose? And I promise you, as you set time aside, particularly these 21 days that we're going to be going through through prayer and fasting, and you seek God and ask him, what is your specific purpose in my life? What do you want to do with me? He will answer you, how do I know? Because I've done it. In 2004, I began to just pray and seek the Lord, and I say, God, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm doing all these things already. I, I'm, I'm, I'm serving, I'm, I'm, I'm evangelizing, I'm discipling, I'm, I'm doing these things, but Lord, I feel like there's something more, something different that you want to do, something specific in my life. And as I sought the Lord early mornings before I went to work, you know, making the sacrifice, folks, to seek his face, to find, to find out what he designed me and created me for, he gave me the call on my life. He, he called me into ministry in that moment. And, and it was an awesome period of time in my life, man. I will never forget that. Um, and, and I ought not be longing backwards. I ought to be, I, I can have that same sort of intimacy with God today because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he called me. Did I know exactly what that was? Mm-mm. But I started walking it out. I knew that the Lord called me to ministry. I didn't know what. I didn't know. This is nothing I sought to do, by the way. To have any interest in being up here teaching people about the Bible. I could barely read out loud without stumbling all over my words. And maybe you hear me stumble over my words. That's because I'm not a great reader. But you know what? I'm a called man by God. And I'm not going to let my inabilities, you know, stop me from doing what he calls me to do. Even if I look like a fool, I told the Lord. I'll look like a fool for you any day of the week, Lord. You look like a fool for me. When you hung on the cross and everybody was ridiculing you, you better be, able to, you better be willing to look like a fool for him, folks. He doesn't do that because he wants you to be a fool. He does that because he wants you to be humble and to understand that he can use anybody. Can he use a donkey to speak to someone? He can use you. I promise. So, so Paul gives Titus here his purpose, and it's a twofold purpose. He is to put what remained in order, verse 5a, and then in 5b, to appoint elders in every town. This is what he's supposed to do. He, he now knows his purpose. Why am I in Crete? Set things in order and appoint elders in the, in the church in every city. He understands what he's supposed to do. When Sonia and I came to Columbia, Tennessee, after we kind of worked through what it is that God was calling us uh, to do, what he was calling me to do in terms of my specific ministry and then her to help me to fulfill that ministry, then uh, the Lord gave us a specific word. He said, I want you to plant a church in Columbia, Tennessee. told us both the same thing, totally, um, you know, at different times. And then he said... I want you to plant the church in Columbia, Tennessee, and then I want you to minister to people who have been hurt by the church. That's your call in Columbia, Tennessee. I'm thinking like, man, how, those, those seem like hard people to reach. I mean, I don't know. Why, why, why you put that on me, Lord? Like, people that don't been hurt by the church don't want to go to church, Lord. What are you doing? But he told us this. I want you to represent my grace and love for people because I didn't have a background that I had to get over in order to come into uh, ministering to people. I didn't have a religious background. I didn't have, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I didn't have to overcome hurdles like Paul did in order to step into his ministry and probably Peter and all the rest. I, I didn't, I had a worldly, uh, you know, hurdles that I had to overcome, but not, not in the church. And so the Lord put us here and he said, I want you to minister to people who have been hurt by the church. And do you know there's people that come into our body 
who've been hurt by the church. It's not something, you know, the Lord brings those people into our path. It's not something we seek out. He, he, but he told us, you, you understand your purpose. You need to represent my grace and my love to people as they come in here. You better not be, get legalistic, Tim. You better be careful because that, that is not going to uh, bode well for me because your purpose is to represent me in my grace and love to people. And so that, that's our call. And you know, some people say, whoa, 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 whoa. Listen, you talk to God about it. That's what he told us. We're just doing what he told us to do. You worry about yourself. We'll worry about ourselves. Amen? So here's the thing. Is, so here we go. He tells, he tells Titus, I want you to go in, set things in order. You know that word is a compound Greek word, to set in order. It's three different words. Epi means upon, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The upon experience, the epi experience in the Greek. The epi means to be upon. Dia means through. And attachment to ortho means to make straight. That's the compound Greek word here. So he's talking about, um, you know, coming upon, working through to make things set straight. The, the, the Greek word comes from the original word orthos, which is where we derive our word orthodontist, orthopedic. These are people who are meant to set things straight, i.e. teeth and bones. Conor McGregor could use an orthopedic this morning because he broke his leg last night. Titus was to be... A spiritual orthopedic or orthodontist within the body of Christ to set things straight. Why? Because things were crooked. There's a problem. There was no, there's no structure and so people are doing whatever. It's kind of a little bit wild. Maybe not to the point of uh, Ephesus, but we'll get into what, what things needed to be um, set in order next week as we work through verses 10 through 16. But but what's interesting is Paul immediately moves into the second purpose that Titus has, and that is to appoint elders in, in the churches everywhere there. And it's interesting that he says set up structure first, and then we'll deal with the, 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 all the disarray that's happening within the body of Christ. But you have to have the structure first. And so that's what he deals with. He deals with, you know, setting and appoint, you know, to appointing men to, to be leaders within the body of Christ so that there can be some sort of structure moving forward. If you go in and, and try and order chaos without any structure, guess what? It's like herding cats. You can kind of get something going, and when, as soon as you turn your back, it's disarray again. And so, so you have to have a structure first. And so Paul says, well, Here's what I want you to do, and then let's start with appointing elders. So he goes into now talking about what, what an elder ought to look like. He's, he tells Titus, appoint them. Again, this isn't in the sense that he's selecting and choosing uh, those who are, um, you know, he's making people elders. No, they're already elders. He's just saying select them in, in terms of appoint them, meaning put, give them the authority to step into the position that they're called to be. But here's what you need to look for. And so Titus's job was to, to, to set up that initial structure so that the church could move forward and thrive and really be a, a hospital to the sick and be a, a school to those who, are, who want to know more about Jesus and so that they can become more like Jesus. And so um, the first thing that you need to understand about walking in this leadership role is it's something that the person ought to aspire. In fact, we find that from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a, a noble task. The aspiration of the office of overseer is given by God. You know how we, we say these kinds of things, you know, like God gives you the desires of your heart? Do you know what that means? That means he doesn't give you what you want. He puts in your heart the desires that he wants you to have, right? That's the correct understanding of, of Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning he will input them within you. When you open yourself up to God and you say, Lord... I want to seek your face in how you want to use me and, and how you want to, you know, whatever you want to do. I'm open to whatever it is that you want to do. Now you're poised in position for him to speak and to put a desire in your heart. It starts with somebody who aspires that. Does that mean that everybody who aspires to be a leader is called? No, it doesn't. So you have to start to wonder, is this the flesh or is this the Lord? Again, going back to the calling, person needs to be called. 
Listen, you have to be an incredibly strange puppy to want this position without a call from God, I promise you. And you have to even be a more bizarre puppy to step into it with a call from the Lord. You know why? Because there is a level of scrutiny in this position in the church that is brutal, to be quite honest with you. Not necessarily on the horizontal, but also on the vertical, which is far more important, which is the one I care about, is the vertical one. The Lord says through James in James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter, with a greater strictness. That isn't to say that, again, God has a different standard. What it is to say is when people are up front, they're visible, and that God is using then it's sort of like the idea of the more you know, the more you're accountable to. The more God uses you, the more you're accountable to Him and how you're being used. So you're up here and you're saying things. You don't get to say what you want to say. You need to say what He says because you're His voice box. And that goes to you too. When you're out in the world and you're talking to people, you don't get to just say whatever you want to say and do whatever you want to do. You need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. And do what he tells you to do. Because you're his ambassador. I'm his ambassador. I need to be careful about the, the kind of things that I'm saying and doing. There is, however, those who step into a pulpit, who teach from a pulpit, a stricter, uh, a greater strictness. Why? Because you can lead people astray very easily. How many churches have folded or people walked away from the Lord because the pastor did something, you know, grievous and the, the whole congregation was following him rather than Jesus, and then it folds. You know, listen, uh, there is no infallible people except for Jesus Christ. I'll tell you that first and foremost. But if, you, if, you, uh, if a church collapses because a man fails in the pulpit, you're following the wrong person. You need to follow Jesus Christ. But, but I, I don't say that to, because I'm that person and I, I want, <laughs> hey, you know. But no, I say that because um, we don't look to man. We look to God. You know, and the Lord is using me and he's using you. And he uses me differently. But, but as I preach the word, I'm accountable to him and what I say, how I live. And also if I lead people astray. So I, I want to I consider that. I take that serious. And so, you know, he calls those people and then they have to step into that. Now, Paul goes on here to Titus when he's telling him, here's how I want you, to, here's the kind of people I want you to, um, to appoint. These are the qualities defined in verses 6 through 9. If anyone is above reproach, the first quality Paul mentions is that of being above reproach. The idea repeated in verse 7 where it says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. This carries the idea of being blameless. That is not to say sinless. That is not to say sinless, but it is to say blameless. In other words, nobody can come and bring an accusation against you on any particular thing because, you know, it's not because you're sinless, but because you're living in that transparency parent lifestyle of if you blow it, you go to that person, you make it right. There's a true repentance in your heart that you're legitimately uh, doing your best and you're avoiding evil. You know, you're doing your best to, to not fall in any area, to be above reproach. Um, in, uh, what, what Paul says is he doesn't want people to be able to, uh, to come against the church and blame the church for something. You know, and so the guy, so the, the person that steps in this role as elder needs to be a person who um, is living their lives in an exemplary way. Because listen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, especially if it's in the pulpit. You have to be, you have to be a man who is considered above reproach. And so, and then he goes on here to tell us that he must also be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul moves on, you know, to the personal life of the man, from the personal life to the home life of the man, to say, he says he wants, he needs to be a husband of one wife. That, that means literally a one-woman man, not a two-time man, a one-woman man. And we talked about this in depth in First Peter, or First Timothy, chapter three. But an elder is not to be promiscuous, to be unfaithful, 
it, it does not insinuate in any way by that he must be married, though. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not his point. Oh, you have to be married. His point is also that if this person were ever divorced, that they never qualified for the ministry. There are many, many churches who teach that. That is to go beyond what the Word says here. If Paul was, was concerned about that specific thing, he would have just said he must not be divorced. There is context in which a person can be divorced in a biblical way, by the way. God, uh, you know, Jesus even said that. There is the, the sort of leniency of God allowing man to be divorced, I think, for two specific reasons. One, that there is unfaithfulness in the marriage. Because God knows, Jesus said, the hardness of our hearts in unforgiveness. But number two is if, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if, if an unbeliever is unwilling to live with you, or there's an abandonment or something in that case. You know, those are the kind of the two distinctions when it comes to biblical accounts for divorce. And, but, but people will just say, like a blanket statement, hey, you, you can't be divorced. You know, and, and, and by the way, if, if somebody comes to me and they've been through that, they've been divorced, if it's not a biblical situation, and they say, hey, I've been divorced, well, you know, again, we're not sinless, are we? We're not sinless people. What, what that means then is you dig into that and understand that. You have, to under, you have to ask some questions. What happened? What did you do about it? Have you repented? It's a sin, folks. Have you repented? What, what does God do when we repent? If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness except for divorce. That disqualifies you for ministry, period. Wrong. Wrong. And I think there are guys out here that take these scriptures and they, they take it beyond the context. And there's no forgiveness. There's no grace in, in any situation whatsoever. And uh, so that's not how I see it. I see it as a person who has um, had a change of heart, totally changed directions and come back, you know. If, if he's talking sinlessness, I'm disqualified. And so are you. So I guess we'll just sit here and look at the screen. So there is nobody that can do that, obviously. But he needs to be the husband of one wife. He needs to be a person that will um, care about his, about his wife. He needs to be a person that is committed to, to, to being that Ephesians 5.25 husband. Again, this also applies to every husband in this room. That you love your wives like Christ loved the church. It's not just a call to the elder, but to the husband in general. Listen, you need, husbands, you need to cherish your wife. You need to sacrifice for your wife. You need to love her beyond whatever circumstances are in your life, even if she isn't, if, even if it's not reciprocal. You need to love her. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said so. Man, I tell you, we did an amazing marriage study. And it's sort of rocked me a little bit in the sense, not rocked me, but, but in a good way. In the pre of the premise of this study, it's called sacred marriage. And that is that God uh, didn't create marriage to make you happy, but to make you holy. That is a totally different concept, folks. God is using refiner fire through your spouse to change you if you let him. But you know what? Most of the time, we're so focused on what they're doing or not doing that we're missing out what God wants to do in our own heart. And I would apply the scripture that says, get the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your husband or your wife's eye. Be careful. Love your wives, husbands. The man that is called into the pulpit, he needs to have a, a marriage that other people can look to and say, hey, this guy loves his wife. You can see it. It's evident. In, in that way. Not only that, but they also should ought to be able to look at their children. He says, he goes on here and he says, he must be able, he must have, his children are to be believers and not open to the charges of debauchery or insubordination. Paul is saying that, and, and again, Paul is telling Titus to look for men who can lead their homes well who can lead their wives, who are leading their wives, who are fulfilling that biblical mandate of the male headship in the home, and who are also leading their children well. 
who are doing, who are doing a good job with their children. You know, and, and many people have looked at this scripture and, and said like, well, if any person who steps in the pulpit, if their children are not believers, they're disqualified from ministry. I don't think that's what he means. He says they, they, they need to be believers, but in the sense of, you know, Paul is talking to uh, Titus who's looking at those in Crete who aren't leading their families well, who are not bringing the word of God into their home, who are not giving their children to know, uh, you know, give them the opportunity to know the Lord. It's, it's, an, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it's not also contained in 1 Timothy 3. And uh, uh, David Guzik said this, he said, In Crete, the conversion from paganism to Christianity was pretty low. Titus was to consider how a man is able to reach his own household before appointing them to an elder role. What if he wasn't able to lead his children to the Lord? Does that disqualify him? Absolutely not. However, Titus should dig into that and find out the reasoning. Was it because the child rejected the gospel or because the father didn't teach them? Those are two different things. So here's the reality of it. Is that I'm never going to give an account, even as, a, as the headship of my home, with my wife and my children, I'm never going to give an account for their salvation if I taught them the word of God and if I lived a life that I'm called to live. I'm never going to go before the Lord and he's going to say, okay, you're responsible for these people's salvation. No, you have some responsibility if you're a leader, but you're never going to answer for somebody else. You're going to answer for yourself and the role that God puts you in. If you're a man, you will, you will answer to the Lord for your household. You will answer to whether you led your, your home, whether you, you know, taught your children the, the word of God, whether you uh, led your wife and, and did these kinds of things. You will answer to the Lord for that. But whether or not they walked in the word, you will not answer for that. That is their responsibility. And many people will say, well, Paul, what Paul means is, you know, children beyond the, or children that are under the age of accountability. Listen, here's what I know. This is what I do know. Is that you have a responsibility to teach your children about the gospel. And you need to give your children an opportunity to know the Lord. And you can't do that if you're not living it in your home. So you have to give your children that opportunity. What they do with that, just like anybody else, is their responsibility. And that's what I believe what, what Paul is saying here. He, you have to be able to reach your family. But to say that an, an unbeliever, if a child is an unbeliever in the home, uh, that you're disqualified well, there, there are many, many, and I'm not going to name names, but there are many, 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 many men who would be disqualified in the pulpit if that were the case. Here's what I, and I don't say that to make that excuse to say, oh, well, that, well that, so we're all good here. No. I say that to say that the responsibility lies within their, their willingness and their ability to, to teach and disciple their children. Paul's looking for men that can do that, that can reach a generation of people. They need to be able to reach their own family. The, the concept of, you know, and, and we've had these conversations with people, even myself, you know, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when, when he gets older, he will not depart from it. Anybody know that verse? Proverbs 22, 6, you know, and you're holding on to it with everything you got. And you're wondering, and so many parents beat themselves up because their children aren't walking in the ways of the Lord. They go, oh, man, I guess I didn't do my job. I'm a horrible parent because I didn't, my children aren't walking with the Lord. Did you teach them the word, the word of God? Did you, did you teach them about Jesus? Here's what you need to understand about this verse is this is not an absolute promise. This is a principle in God's word that says this. When you teach your children the word of God, that it, that it is there in their heart. There's a seed there. And that the Lord will bring that to memory in their mind as, they're, as they grow older and they depart, maybe go under the world or whatever. You know, there's something there that they know they have to adjust. And in order for them to continue living in a rebellious lifestyle, they have to harden their heart against the Word of God because you've taught them the Word of God and the Word of God does not return void. So the idea that Proverbs 22.6 is an absolute promise is not, not the case. It's, it's, a, it's a principle that God tells us as parents, as we pour into our children, we give them the Word of God. 
that it's there in their life. They're responsible to do what, to walk in obedience to the Word of God. You're not responsible for their obedience in walking according to the Word of God. Does that make sense? God is telling us that, you know, um, again, I think, I think when it comes to lead, el the eldership here in this situation, it, it has to do, you know, what, what are the re what's the reasoning behind? Are your children believers or not believers? Let's hear the story. I, I, like, I don't think it's cut and dry, you know. If you didn't teach them the Word of God, well, well and, and even in that case, why didn't you? What was the context of that? And let's, let's dig through it. This can kind of be an invasive process, can it? So, again, it takes sick puppies to step into this thing. And it called, called people to do something like this, right? So, the Lord, uh, he's telling them that. Now, he goes on here that you've got to be able to, um, your children need to be, uh, Paul wrote in, actually, let me quote this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, he must manage his own household Let's see, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Paul is looking for men that can manage and rule their own households well. That's what he's looking for. Thirdly, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunken or violent or greedy for gain. This speaks of the inner person of the man. A person who is arrogant is a terrible leader. They may accomplish a lot, but they will lose a lot of people in the process. Arrogance is founded in pride. God calls uh, those who will represent him well to be humble. He, he also calls them to be slow to anger, not quick-tempered. Listen, there's nothing worse than having a leader in the church who has a fuse that blows like that, and he just explodes on people. Um, you know, that's a grievous sin, by the way. It's a grievous sin. Jesus said it's the same as murder in God's eyes. Matthew 21, 22. You have heard that I said that, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not okay to be quick-tempered Christian. Seriously. Now, Especially if you're in an elder pastor role. He's not to be a drunkard. Again, this isn't uh, speaking about total abstinence of alcohol. It says drunkard. It doesn't say not drinking. Here's the thing, though. If you're in leadership role, you want to be careful about stumbling other people, including your children. If you're freely, you know, letting the, letting the alcohol flow in your home and your children are there, are you discipling them? What are you discipling them to do? And I'm not, hey, listen, you do, you do, uh, you know, you do as according to the Holy Spirit tells you to do. I know for me, I don't have alcohol in my home because I don't think that's a good testimony of my kids. I don't want my kids growing up being comfortable around alcohol. I don't think it's something that they should be comfortable with. I'd rather them, you know, you know, say, hey, I never really saw my parents drink alcohol or anything like that. Not that that's wrong. It's not. But again, I don't want to stumble anyone, especially Jesus said the little ones. Be careful. If, you're, if you drink in your home, that's, you know, that's up to you, but be careful about how you do that. Be careful about it. Make sure your children understand that because all they're associating it with is, hey, my parents drink. My parents drink. You know, are, they, are they really thinking, oh, my parents drink responsibly? Well, maybe they do, but here's what I would say. Is that are your children, if they're comfortable with that, are they going to drink responsibly? You know, it's an example thing for me. And... You know, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to be drunk. And that's what he's talking about. And a, a lot of guys will step over the line here and say, you cannot be an eldership in a church if you drink alcohol. I tell my elders, you need to be responsible. And don't stumble people. That's what the Bible says. You, there, there's freedoms in Christ that you need to consider. But I can tell you this. I've never had anybody come into my office and say, you know, Man, alcohol has changed my family for the better. You know, never, never has that ever happened. He's also not to be greedy for gain. He should be willing to serve out of love and not for what benefits him. Fourthly, verse 8, but, hosp but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The elder is to be hospitable. He's supposed to be friendly to strangers. He must also be a, good, a lover of good. His heart should be for what 
honors the Lord. Notice what the, the idea of being a lover of good. He's not known for what he's against, but he's known for what he's for. He's a lover of good. He is also to be upright and holy and disciplined in his walk. He should desire to do what is right, being willing to set apart and sacrifice for such things. This is the attitude of a person who God appoints to eldership or the pastorate. And finally, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in the sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The qualification of an elder is one who has a high esteem for the word of God. For, for the word of God. I would far rather speak God's word to you than anything I have to say. Because I know that this is true and I know that this is, this is um, directly from him. All the rest of it, you make that determination. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you, you need to be a discerner of anything that's said that is not a direct scripture. And you should be going home going, I don't know if he really has that right and whatever. And, and you should be seeking it out. Why? Because your responsibility is for your own life. And for your spirituality, I'm responsible. I'll answer the Lord for everything I've said. But you're responsible for what you do with, with the words that are said as well. He, he, you need to, the person that steps into this role needs to be a person that's dedicated to the Word of God. He's not there to start something new, to say something new. He's there to stick to what's been said. He's steadfast. He is, holds firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. You don't want to hear stories. You want to hear the Word of God. You want somebody who's dedicated to the Word of God because the Word of God will change your life. You might walk out of here like, well, that was a cute story and I feel good about myself, but it could make zero impact in your life. But the Word of God, the Word of God when you leave this place is in you. It's with you. The Holy Spirit will then use that and remind you of these things. You need the Word of God in your life. And it shouldn't just be coming from here. He, he, uh, he also goes on to say he's able to instruct in sound doctrine. Like he's not making stuff up. He's not creating his own doctrine. He's letting the word say what it says. It says what it says. Again, nobody will do that perfectly, folks. But the heart of the person should be, I want the word of God to say what it says. And, you know, even in complicated conversations... We need to let the Word of God say what it says because God can use that. And that's, by the way, how you rebuke somebody that's contrary to the Word of God. You use the Word of God. You know, sometimes we love to tell people how wrong they are and we go way beyond what we're supposed to say and we don't even use a scripture. I don't, I think you're totally off. And, and by the way, I would say that what Paul intends to mean here, what the Holy Spirit through Paul intends to mean, is specific to things that, you know, are primary issues in the body of Christ, i.e., Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know, we have different views on the rapture. We have different views on other things in the body of Christ. And so, you know, you, a, a pastor needs to be able to say, look, this is what this says and this is what I believe this means. He needs to have the ability to, you know, con to, to rebuke any kind of contradiction of the Word of God. But I think on secondary issues, you do not go, you don't, you don't need to go beyond and make people believe what you believe. That's not my job, is to make you believe what I believe. My job is to tell you what I believe the Word of God says, and your job is to discern it. And your job is to receive from whatever it is the Lord wants you to receive from that. And it should challenge you to go home and go, man, I don't, I don't know if I see it that way. Not just pass it off or brush it off, but go then into the scriptures yourself and dive into it and say, God, this is, this is what this says. What does this mean? And you seek it out for yourself. He'll tell you. You know, I, I've said this before earlier this week that, you know, I love what R.S.P. Sproul said. He said, you know, I don't have all my doctrine 100% correct. I just don't know where I'm wrong. And I think that's true for anybody. So you know what? We're all in this boat together, allowing the Holy Spirit to change us, to use us. And so, that, but there are certain characteristics that you need to see from people who are standing in pulpits and people who are leading and ministering to the body of Christ. And you should expect these things. Paul says a person should look like this 
if he's stepping into this role. We take this very serious. And when our process here at our church is when we, when we have elders come forward, when we lay hands on people and we, we go into the uh, people, we, you know, appoint elders in our church, we go to that person, we ask them to pray. Is God calling you? That we see this in your life. Is God calling you? You pray about that. We have a manual that outlines 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. We go through the, the qualifications of an eldership. We talk about the various different things. We have them read it. We have their wife read it if they're married. We then sit down with them and say, hey, are we all on the same page spiritually? Are we all, are we all seeing eye to eye? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit to minister in that moment? Is God doing, you know, is God calling? And after we move past that process, then we bring them before the church. We say, hey, these are, these are men that we believe God is calling to the eldership of our body. Is there anything that we need to know? Not because we're congregationally led, but because we want, we want to be honest before the Lord. And, uh, you know, we can make mistakes, but we, we let the Lord do his, do, do his uh, due diligence through the congregation. Then if there's no issues, we lay hands on these men. We appoint them what we believe to be the, the position that God has put them in. And we're in that process right now. You'll be seeing this here soon. But this is what I believe a church should do. And you should expect this from people who are teaching your children, from people who are, um, you know, you're sitting under teaching of. You should expect people to, be, to take these things seriously. And so... You know, I, I say that I don't know what other people do. This is what we do. We want to be, um, you know, we want to do everything that's in line of Scripture and do our best with that. And I'm sure that there's things that, you know, we may be off on or whatnot, but we're, we're do our best to stick to the Word of God. And that's what you should expect. Amen. Father, we thank you for your Word this morning and for what it means for us now. Lord, here we have before us a passage that speaks about leadership in the body. And yet, Father, here are... Here are just individuals that love you, that want to know you deeper, who are here to hear from you. And, and you, we've laid out these various different things relating to an elder or to a, an overseer. But Lord, you also want us to be like these, these kinds of people. You want our hearts to be sold out to you. We, we, you want your Holy Spirit to shine through us and allow the qualities that were spoken of here to go through our hearts and our minds. To become, to come out of our our li into our lives, Lord, so that we can ex uh, be the ambassadors of Christ that we're called to be. And we know that much of the world's complaint upon Christians is their character. And so we just want to humble ourselves before you, God, and ask you to to just come by your Holy Spirit and just do a work in our hearts today to take seriously the way that we walk in this world, the way that we talk to those in our home and those outside our home, to those in the body of Christ, Lord. And we, we just want to maybe take a moment and confess things to you or maybe just thank you for the qualities that you have given. Father, we want to allow your spirit to move in this moment, and so we ask you to come and just speak into our lives as we as we uh, sing this last song and just help us to respond in an appropriate way to you. So we just, we commit these things to you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.